Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, we're taking a look back at our most talked about, most downloaded segments. And while we walk you through the flames of everything from mass shootings to the opioid epidemic to the uptick in marijuana arrests to road rage, the segment that got the most emails and comments was our debate that aired the weekend after the Super Bowl. St. Nick, as he's being called, had brought home the win and Eagles fans showed out. And a few went in with vandalism. Black Lives Matter called out police saying their hands-off approach to fans created a double standard. If a group of black people in that number were celebrating, we would be perceived as aggressive. It's imperative that we use good judgment. I think for the most part, we did. All sides weighed in on that one, and it got hot, let me tell you. One of our most downloaded podcasts was our annual love show. It aired the weekend after Valentine's Day, where we lifted the shade on open marriages, y'all. Married 11 years, and we've each had a variety of other relationships. Philadelphia's growing polyamorous community, How It Works. All of this and more on our special edition of the Best of Flashpoint. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm Cherry Gregg. This week, we're taking a look back at some of the best segments of the show. And we received a number of emails over our debate on the perceived double standard between policing of fans and the policing of protesters. We'll never forget the Eagles Super Bowl win, as well as the fan reaction, which, while peaceful overall, did include some who turned over cars and set fires. Arrests were made, but Black Lives Matter Philadelphia issued a statement at the time calling police hands-off approach for Eagles revelers a double standard. White individuals get the benefit of doubt in many of ways we're not able to capture. We brought police together with those who protest to come up with solutions. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Deputy Commissioner Joseph Sullivan, who runs patrol operations for the Philadelphia Police Department. We also have Shania Akila and Abdul Ali Muhammad, co-founders of the Black and Brown Workers Collective. And on the phone, we have James Font, a criminal defense and civil rights attorney who has experience with a variety of First Amendment matters. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much. Yes. And so Deputy Commissioner Sullivan, on the night of the Super Bowl, when, I mean, it felt like Mardi Gras in Philadelphia, um, fans were celebrating. How did the city view the policing of this evening? The number of people that came to the celebration was truly overwhelming. We, We were surprised by the number of people that came down. And although the majority of the people celebrated peacefully and as they should, unfortunately, there was a small group. But too large a group of people that acted in a way that's completely unacceptable. There were seven arrests made that night, and there, there has been a, a subsequent arrest made as a result of video and follow-up investigation, and there's several more arrests coming. Yeah. How did you all view that night, Shani? We live in a space of, uh, you know, oppositional ideas sometimes, right? And so, for example, my partner is a huge fan and was watching the Super Bowl and was really, you know, excited <laughs> when Philly won. And on the other hand, um, the very second thing that came out of, of both of our mouths was it's going to be ridiculous in Philly tonight. 
right? We knew that the levels of uh, just the, the amount of people in the street, we knew that there would be damage to property in some form, right? We knew that especially for black people, it would not necessarily be safe to even be out there, right? And so, again, our reality as black people living in this country is always, you know, a double-edged sword. And that's how we experienced the Eagles win. It was right? a mixed crowd from what I could tell. James, do you see the celebration as a First Amendment, you know, expression? Well, yeah. The first thing you have to ask is, is it speech? And all different kinds of things have been determined to be speech. You know, whether or not it's online posts, movies, television, theater, dance, political yard signs, clothing, um, you know, uh, even even likes on Facebook have determined to be speech, and even the non-discussion or, you know, not kneeling for our, the national anthem or not giving the Pledge of Allegiance have been determined to be speech. Um, if it is speech, is the government then censoring it in any way or, or form? You're not allowed to vandalize things. Um, you know, that's, that's not speech. That is you know, a criminal act for which the police have a very difficult job that they need to follow up on. So celebrations generally, though, um, can in fact be speech. The question is whether or not they are threatening anybody, or are they inciting any violence specifically. Turn, turning over cars is not an expression of free speech. I know, breaking windows, not expression of not speech. Not an expression of free speech. And right. and what are the things that crossed the line, and, and, and what kind of arrests were made? Well, the night of, we made seven arrests. Some were for assault, some were for vandalism, um, others were for disorderly conduct. Uh, the, the arrests that are, are going to be made in the future, the majority of them will be for Act, uh, acts of riot, vandalism, theft, because there are items that were taken on Chestnut Street um, by people. There's, there's serious charges. To be quite honest, if you see yourself on, on our social media website, your, your best bet is to turn yourself in because sooner or later we will be coming to see you because there's a lot of people in the public that are really angry about what happened, and we've getting a lot of cooperation. We had wall-to-wall people from South Street almost up to Vine Street, I mean completely shoulder-to-shoulder, um, even including the side streets. That's why the use of technology and following up on these investigations to arrest the people that we would have liked to arrest that night, but we just couldn't get there in time is, is, is Commissioner Ross has given that. Is, it has the department's top priority. Obviously, because of the crowds, everybody who committed acts of vandalism or other crimes were not caught. But it raised the issue because a lot of folks said there is a double standard. They felt like there was a double standard, that it was more of a hands-off approach used in the case of fan celebrators versus individuals who protest. Is that how the BBWC views it? I know Black Lives Matter issued a statement. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, we want to acknowledge the labor of Black Lives Matter of Philadelphia. Um, those are those are we work very closely with them as organizers and we absolutely support that position. As organizers, what we understand is that every 28 hours a black body hits the ground. Right. That's part of our motivation for resisting um, a police state when another murder occurs. Now, we don't even have to go as far as talking about, you know, who at the Super Bowl was police and who wasn't. It doesn't matter. We're, we're talking about a larger system in place that has been in place for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that is still in place today, right? We can talk about David Jones in Philadelphia. Now, David Jones was a man, North Philly. He was on his dirt bike, right? When he was shot... He his back was turned to the police. Right. Yeah. And, and I want to bring it continues. back to this this idea of the double standard between the way people the, who demonstrate are treated that. or police between the way 
uh, celebrators are police. We're, the celebrators the night of the Super Bowl, if you looked at the crowd, because it was majority white people, you didn't hear the same language. You didn't hear rioters. Okay? You didn't hear aggression. You yeah. didn't hear those things. When it's majority black people in the street protesting because another black person has been murdered by a police officer, yeah. we are aggressive. We are rioters. We are crim- we are in- immediately criminalized. I want to have Jamie you jump in here because sure. Sure. is there a difference between the way uh, the law <laughs> looks at the celebration? We talked about this, the celebration versus a protest. They're both considered to be speech, right? Should there be a difference in the way that they're treated? Uh, let, let me acknowledge a couple things. Um, number one, I, I think that there, it's without question that there's been institutionalized racism over history. But there is, in my mind, also a very a, a big difference when you're talking about a celebration, a citywide celebration on a sporting event uh, versus you know a, a legitimate political protest. That clearly is a First Amendment and free speech issue. Um, you know, so long as it does not have immediate incitement to, to violence. Right, that, you know, and unless it's specifically directed at individuals, uh, those protests need to be treated with First Amendment gloves. Celebrations that you know that there is no political message uh, that's going on, other than everyone should be happy and hopefully peaceably, um, you know, celebrate a, a long, you know, long, long-awaited eagle victory. Yeah. Um, but when you cross the line, uh, then certain actions have to be taken. The question is going to be, you know, is it going to be uniformly taken, regardless of the skin color of the person who is alleged to have done the particular crime? How does the police department view? the protests and demonstrations versus the celebrations? And is there a difference in the way these two are policed from your from the department's point of view? No, absolutely not. We, we enter both, whether responding to a demonstration or this type of celebration. We begin by, first of all, our goal is not to make any arrest. We see our position at a demonstration is our job is to protect the rights of the protesters to make sure we can create a safe environment for them to exercise their First Amendment rights. I mean, I, I personally walked 20 miles in a single night with protesters protesting the police as we shut down the streets ahead of them. Um, mm-hmm. We also, uh, in, in preparation for the Democratic National Convention, we, we began the use of the civil violation notices purposely because yeah. our other goal is not to criminalize protesters even when they actually ask to be arrested. Because it's their way of expressing themselves. Is there any reaction or response to this? If you look at the history of Philly, you don't have to look that long ago to see the violence of uh, police towards black-led organizing. Um, If you look at the direct actions we did last year around neighborhood racism or around um, calling for the resignation of Nelly, for instance. It was one award ceremony we went to. It was about 20 organizers. We come outside. It's about maybe 100 bike cops. Um, there's, there's cops further down, but if you look at some organizing happening around, let's say not, not the women's March, but a coalition of white led organizations in Philly, you you don't see the kind of surveillance that you see at a black led, you know, direct action. (laughs) There's just not the same police presence. The police don't organize in the same way. Um, they don't flank the crowd in the same way that they do when it's black organizers. Is there a difference in the show of force? Sometimes these protesters, it's like 10 people, but there's twice as many, if not three times as many mm-hmm. police officers. How do you determine the show of force when it's a protest? Well, I, you know, I like to say it's a perfect science, but it's not. When we have to cover a protest and the individuals protesting 
um, did not wish any you know communication with the police beforehand to give us an idea of what they tend to do. I don't know if they're going to march. If they're going to march, I have to get those streets shut down. That takes bodies at each intersection so that they can move move safely. A lot of it uh, is perception, and I'm sorry because we, we do do things in a very standard way. We look at the history of the group, past practices, past experiences. Um, but, for instance, the, the Women's March was brought up, and that's another example. Anytime I, I have a large gathering in, in this day and age, I have to have individuals there. I mean, if you're talking about a Black Lives Matter march, I have to make sure that, that some, some racist individual or group is not going to attack that march. I have to be prepared. I have to be thinking about that. The Women's March was mentioned I had women, Caucasian women, come over to me, and they were a little upset by the resources that I had had out there. So I explained to them, if I'm going to have 50,000 people anywhere in this day and age, unfortunately, I have to have certain type of resources out there. And what did that mean? A large number of police out there? We had a large number of police, and we had some of our Homeland Security unit officers out there. We had blocking vehicles on the parkway. It's not... It, it, it's a tough line for us to walk sometimes. We want to keep people safe. We understand how that can sometimes perceived as, yeah. as being oppressive. I wish there was a, a way for me to know how many protesters are. We, we look at social media and see how many people are planning to come, whether they intend to shut the street down. I mean, it's not a perfect science. And that's why we really encourage groups, even if it's the police they're protesting against, if they could just speak with us just on a, from a business standpoint in advance, uh, you know, we, we would be able to... To better judge that number and maybe reduce the number of officers. And, and what do you say to response to cooperation or talking to the police when you do the demonstration? Yeah, we don't. That is not the goal. We are not there to work with the police. The police are implicated in this larger system of violence against black bodies. It doesn't matter. He, you know, the, the commissioner is talking about there's no perfect science. OK, but the fact that 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 is even a statement made shows that there is an insensitivity to black death. The reason why people are so angry about the Eagles in that celebration is because white people, majority white people, it doesn't matter if there were black people out there too. We are talking about a system of white racism in place. So white people can get up and celebrate and be safe. They can celebrate and break a lamppost. They can celebrate and eat horse poop. Some guy ate horse poop, right? They can, they can do these things and walk out alive. If a group of black people in that number were celebrating, we would be perceived as angry, aggressive. If a lamp uh, broke, we could end up in jail or worse, murdered on the spot because there have been black people murdered for a lot less. This is not even worthy. I know why we're having the conversation, but this isn't even a debate. He could be the nicest guy in the world, deputy sitting to the to the left of me. It doesn't matter. He's an agent within a larger system that murders black people systematically. So until that changes, yeah. it doesn't matter if there are good cops. I understand the anger. Uh, I'm not African-American, so I haven't you know, historically dealt with the same kinds of issues uh, that we're talking about. But I think there is a really big difference between comparing celebrations for an event as, as an Eagle Super Bowl victory was versus political protest. And I think a, more, a better comparison, I think a fair, more fair comparison, is if you look at protests across the spectrum of the different groups and the issues that you're talking about, you know, for example, you know, what happened down in South Carolina, you know, with the white supremacists that went down there and, and how was, how was, you know, that treated? And, you know, in, in terms of, 
you know, the police action or non-action in that case that led to a death uh, versus, you know, protests that occur with Black Lives Matter or whatever, whatever organization that we're talking about. I think if you look at the disparity of the reactions by police departments yeah. generally there, I think you get a much more fair comparison. Whether or not there is a larger issue of, of a police state and that people have been mistreated has to be dealt with and has to be dealt with through, in my mind, First Amendment issues, yeah. dialogue and speech. You attack in my mind, bad speech with more speech. Because of time, I'm sorry, I'm right. going to have to wrap this up, but I want to sure. give each of you 15 seconds. James said this may not be a fair comparison, but the fact is that a lot of people do believe that there is some type of double standard that exists. Can we encapsulate this issue from each of your perspectives? Shows like this are really important to bring together very disparate conversations. And in that way, I hope that we can really bring people together. There has been a movement toward greater dialogue with the police, and I am hopeful that Philadelphia is going to move forward in that. Mine is very short. Nobody lost their life at the Eagles parade. Nobody lost their life the night everybody was going bananas in Center City. Nobody got murdered by a cop. It's easy for assumptive allies, I would say, to diminish the experiences of black people by explaining why we need more dialogue, by, you know, talking about this is different than just direct actions. Instead, what we, what we seek to do mm-hmm. is to have accomplices and allies who d- affirm what black people experience and not always have a but about our, what we say um, the difference in terms of treatment is. I would just encourage that person on the phone, on the phone you know, reflect a little before you respond to, to black people saying this is our experiences. All right. And final word. There is a significant difference between trying to manage 100,000 mostly young, mostly intoxicated celebrators. Our job is to to not make things worse than they already are. As the police commander out there, it's very important with a group that large. If we are we overreact, if we move too quick, quickly, we literally could have caused a stampede out there. We could have caused a riotous crowd to, to have formed that would have made the situation completely different. So it's imperative that we good, we use good judgment. I think for the most part, we did. We never think we're a perfect police department. We think we're a department that continually has to work to get better. And I, and I do think communication is important. Thank you so much to Deputy Commissioner Joe Sullivan, to Shani Akila, and to Abdul Ali Muhammad, as well as to James Font for talking about this flashpoint in the news. Next up, our fan favorite newsmaker segment looks at polyamory. My wife is with me and she has a boyfriend and that is it. I date a variety of people. Open marriage, what it is and what it isn't. On this Best of Flashpoint, we'll be right back. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks, all. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, a fan favorite for our podcast, got a heap of downloads. It was released Valentine's Week, where we explored the headline-making rise of non-monogamous relationships. That's right, polyamory. Now, if you never heard of it, It's where individuals who are married or unmarried maintain multiple romantic relationships with the knowledge and consent of everyone involved. Everybody knows about everybody, okay? Philadelphia now, they have a growing poly 
community. It's called Polydelphia. They have a Facebook page. You can go, you know, friend it or whatever and get involved. And we invited a polyamorous couple into the studios. And I got to ask them how this thing works. Take a listen. Kevin Patterson, author of Love's Not Colorblind, and Rebecca Hiles, who wrote It's Called Polyamory, coming out about your non-monogamous relationships. Thank you both for coming into the KYW studios. And just so everyone knows, you guys have had a relationship for about three years. Yeah, absolutely. And so, Kevin, you're married. I am. Talk about your marriage and then how you were able to, was this something you agreed on from the gate? My wife and I just sort of stumbled into it, like, very early in our relationship. We'd only been going out maybe, like, six or seven months. We just sort of stumbled into an open situation, and when we thought it was going to get weird and awkward, it just sort of didn't. Instead of getting weird, we just started having a lot of really in-depth conversations about what we wanted out of our relationship, how important exclusivity was. It just sort of blossomed out of that. We've been together 16 years, married 11 years, and we've each had uh, a variety of other relationships over the course of that time. You know, some stay, some go, things change, and but we've never really considered going backwards into monogamy. Everything sort of ventures off from this base relationship. It's because you are married here, and then there's other relationships there. I mean, I wouldn't say that it extends off of a base relationship. Um, I don't let... I don't let my relationship with my wife sort of infringe on any other relationships that I'm in, and she won't let me infringe on any other relationships that she's in. It's just that we we do have sort of an, an advanced level of involvement and investment. Like, we've got kids together. We've got a house and, like, health, ins- health insurance together and everything. So I can't, like, disregard that for my other relationships. But my wife can't tell me what to do in, with other people, and I can't tell her what to do with other people either. Rebecca, you kind of, I guess, three years ago, you you met. And how did y'all meet? We met at a conference about uh, polyactivism. We were in a panel together, and I got real angry at some people, and Kevin decided to to say some words to me. <laughs> and so then you connected. Yeah, and yeah. We, we started talking after that, and, and we, we just had a connection. It just sort of went from there. Three years later, you have... Are you? Do you consider yourselves partners? The thing about uh, the thing about about non-monogamy in general is that uh, sort of every term needs to lead to a conversation. Yeah, I refer to Rebecca as a partner, but does that mean that um, she has the same level of like involvement or investment or you know a- activity as everyone else that I call partner? No, but that's a conversation that me and her have and decide on. And so this is all about consent. It's unique to each individual. Absolutely. Yes. And my relationships are a little bit different and a little bit structured. My partner lives in New York and I spend the majority of my time with him more so that he comes down from New York and he spends all of his time with me. And I actually have more interaction with Kevin's wife than I do with my partner's wife, in spite of the fact that I see my partner more than I see Kevin. So it it just becomes really, really interesting that Kevin's wife and I, we, we actually spend time together. We, you know, message each other on Facebook. We hang out. We go shopping occasionally. And so nobody gets upset. Nobody gets jealous or mad or anything that like that. That is a lie. Yeah. That <laughs> That's a big true. myth. Okay. Yeah. That is a huge myth. Yeah. The first thing a lot of people say is, I couldn't do that. I get jealous. No, we all get jealous. Everyone gets jealous. It's a human reaction. It's just sort of a matter of what you do with that jealousy, how you manage it. Where if I feel jealous of my, you know, of any of my partners and anything else they're doing with anybody else, you know, that says something to me about a fear or insecurity I have. That's mine. I own that. 
but how can we resolve it? If you think about traditional marriages and people think that if I marry this person, it's the only person I could be with for the rest of my life. And then that's a long time for a lot of people, if you're lucky. And a lot of marriages break up because of extramarital relationship. Is this a way to keep a marriage together? No, it's definitely not. And what ends up happening when you do that is it doesn't address the inherent problems in your marriage that you might be having. Adding another person to your marriage, adding, you know, opening up your marriage that doesn't address the communication issues that you might be having. You need to sort of go into non-monogamy considering the the possibilities and understanding that there's a lot of communication that needs to go into this and there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And you need to be prepared for how to have those conversations and how to have those outcomes. And so you need to go into non-monogamy in a lot of ways, feeling really good about the way you communicate with your partner. And also there's the idea that um, if you're sort of experimenting with non-monogamy as a way to like uh, save a relationship, you're also dealing with other full-fledged human beings, autonomous human beings. You can't just use people as an experiment as a way to save relationship A, you're going to toss in some new person and and think that that's going to be okay. Like people don't want to be used in that way. People aren't the spice to to flavor up an unsatisfying marriage. And I have to say, like the one thing that I sort of intrigues me about it is the open communication that everybody is clear about everybody else. Yes. People still lie. Like people are still human. They're going to mess up. One of the things I think that's, that's really useful and that's a really common trait in people who are successful in non-monogamy is that you're able to move past things. You're able to sit down and have conversations about it and able to sort of navigate these a little bit better. And so you and your wife, Kevin, just agreed on this. Currently, how many people would you label as a partner? Um, That's always a really tricky question for me. My wife is with me and she has a boyfriend and that is it. That is sort of the limits of her her emotional uh, bandwidth. I mean, if she, if she decided she wanted to like take on a, you know some other partner, that's cool too. But that's where she is right now. I date a variety of people. I date a lot. I've got a lot of people in a lot of different levels of involvement and investment. I don't know who I'd call what. And that's okay. Like, I'm I'm not checking off tallies. I don't like, keep a running list. So it could just be we just friends and we hang out occasionally. If that changes, that's okay, too. Where I've had that situation where it's somebody where we're friends and then we did that. And that was cool until it wasn't. And then we did something else. And that was cool, too. Do you have to tell your wife about this stuff? I mean, my wife doesn't really keep a lot of checks and balances on me, and really she just ne- doesn't police it. She's like, "Do you?" Yeah, and long, you're like, "Do you?" As long as I'm ha- as long as we're all happy, safe, respectful, and keeping sort of a running dialogue or communication, if anything really changes along those lines of safety, happiness, and respect, then we're fine. And so, Rebecca, are you married, and do you have a similar arrangement? I'm actually divorced. I'm in a polyamorous relationship with my partner, my cat, and my bachelor's degree. But I do have like. Other partners who are, you know, a little bit more casual, who I spend time with when I can, when I fit them in. Kevin sort of fits that category. People who I can see when I can see them, when I have time to fit around the bachelor's degree, to fit around the cat, et cetera. And it it, it could fluctuate and change and everybody has their own definition of of what it is. And I I think that's something that that I, I say all the time where like my only problem with monogamy is that it ends up being sort of a default setting for, for a lot of people. Many cases it's not the result of a long conversation about what do we want out of this relationship? What does exclusivity look like? What do we do in the, in the matter of an infidelity? People don't have those conversations. They just say we're going steady. And that is the last conversation we get until we're engaged, which is the last conversation that they have until 
what day is the wedding? And when it comes to non-monogamy, you kind of have to have a lot of those conversations about what this looks like. You know, I have to have a conversation about what our relationship is. And we might have to have a conversation about what your relationship is with someone else. And how do, how do uh, we navigate those waters between your relationship with me and your relationship with someone else? Or do we even have to, you know, do I... Do I want to hang out with one of your partners or not? Like, I'm a New York Giants fan. Sorry, Philadelphia. But, like, my wife's partner is also a New York Giants fan. So they hang out? Like, we, we hang out and we watch, we watch Giants games. Not, in the, not much this season, but we hang out and talk about what Eli Manning is doing. That's sort of a thing that we have to have long conversations about. What level of involvement do I want to have with my wife's partners, with my other partner's partners, and so on? At the Christmas party, does everybody come? Yeah. People do have like their own, you know, their own reactions to this. Some people don't want to be involved with their other partners and you can have, you know, there there's levels of comfort with this. I'm a person who likes to be involved, um, mostly because I'm just uh Kevin likes to put it aggressively out. Yeah. Um and I'm I'm there with that. Everybody knows that I'm non-monogamous and I don't hide it in any way. So I like to meet my partners partners. I also let them come to me in terms of their level of involvement. And so as we wrap this conversation up, I just, you know, it, it's just interesting to me that people are coming out. I mean, part of it ends up being sort of the Internet. I mean, non-monogamy has been something that's been around for, you know, for centuries. It's harder to build community when you don't know who else is OK with that. And there are people who who come out about their non-monogamy and lose friends and lose family members. You know, my my relationship with my family has been strained for a couple of years since I decided that I wasn't going to be quiet about it. But if I'm online, if I'm on Facebook, if I'm in a forum, if I'm at a meetup group, I have a bunch of people around that I can sort of go to for support. People who have made the same mistakes that I've made or made brand new mistakes that I can learn from where it it doesn't just have to be somebody sees this as a phase and your friends and your family all tell you like, hey, that's a problem. I've got, you know, I haven't seen or hung out with a monogamous person in several months. You know, because I've got a community here in in the local area and a community online that I can, you know, that I can spend most of my time around. And so as we wrap this up, I just want you to each give like a 15 second little soundbite for me. Like, where do you think it's going? I'm not really sure. As of right now, I'm I'm living my life to its very best. And all I can all I can do is ask other people to do the same. Find your honesty, find your truth and, and live within it. Yeah. Right now, I think the only thing we can ask for is just acceptance from the people around us. Um, so I, I want there to be a space for us to like grow and change and and have like policies put in place for non-monogamous relationships. But right now, I'll just settle for some better representation in media and people to stop looking at us like we've got foreheads. Yeah. And I didn't want to. And just so you know, I tried to keep the conversation clean and didn't go into some of the other issues. But I do think that just the idea of having different types of relationships should people should think about it. And like you said, they shouldn't always, you know, resort to one type because that's the only thing that they've seen. So thank you so much to Kevin Patterson. And thank you so much to Rebecca Hiles for being on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you for having us. Next up, one of our favorite change makers was honored by KYW during Black History Month. I don't sugarcoat nothing. An in memoriam tribute as we look back at the best of Flashpoint. We'll be right back.
It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Jerry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is the best of Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, and during Black History Month, we honored Miss Helen Brown. Well into her 70s, Brown Sugar, as she's called, had worked as a community organizer for Project Home since 1995. She passed away in September, so we salute her with this tribute. Miss Brown, welcome to Flashpoint. You know everybody. Just about. Some of the things folks told me you did was... You started an award-winning neighborhood drill team. Tell me about this drill team. The drill team basically started right out here on the steps here at Cindy's. They were doing double dutch, the kids, and they were making a lot of noise and arguing among themselves. And I said, listen, I don't need this loud noise, and I, don't, I need you all to do something that you can do together. So they said, Could you, will you get us a drill team? Not knowing what they meant about a drill team, I said yes, and we started from there, and we're still doing it, and we've been now we'll come up on our twenty fourth year. Congratulations, thank you. That's just one. Uh, the other accomplishment, folks said, is that you distribute Thanksgiving and Christmas food baskets and clothing. It's not just me here; it's come through different organizations. We did about six hundred baskets this year. Wow! In addition to that, you manage. An ongoing food pantry. Yes, we had the food pantry. People come here Tuesdays through Friday. You go to the door, <laughs> knocking on folks' door, telling them it's time to vote. Yes, I do. A lot of guys just stand on the corner when we have election. I look at the sheet and see that they hasn't been here to vote yet, and I'll go round them up. So they say, man, come on, let's go vote, because we don't want no trouble out of Miss Helen. They listen to you? Yes, they do. I was friends with their grandparents, their mothers, so I know them when they were small, all growing up here in the neighborhood. You keep residents informed, work with the utility companies, and obtain jobs for youth. They said that you helped get people scholarships. We have uh, what we call Philly Scholars, with 12 kids graduated. And they said that in addition to that, you help seniors? Because I'm a senior myself, and I figured... The ones that can't come out and help themselves, I more or less get the kids in the neighborhood to go see what they need from the store or help clean out their backyards or just whatever the senior need that they can't do themselves. And they said that you um, were the block captain? Block captain and committee person. Now, I called your phone and it said, you reach brown sugar. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend, and that's a nickname he gave me for the last 50, 60 years. They call you brown sugar, but you don't sugarcoat nothing. No, I don't. I don't sugarcoat nothing because these kids need to know it. They have to know real life. Where did you get this drive to do so much? I have the drive, but when Project Home came, it was over to fulfill the dream and the drive that I've had for the neighborhood. And what was that dream? Try to make it better for the people who live here. And with Project Home, we were able to um, do houses for first-time home buyers. And take some of the vacant lots, 
clean them up and make like sitting parks was just, and got rid of graffiti. At that time, graffiti was really bad. But through Project Home organizations getting money to help us do these things, that's how it started. That yeah. was my mission, my dream. Do you feel like it's coming true? Yes. Yeah. We just got a new wellness center around the corner. Mm-hmm. That has a dentist, a pharmacy, medicine, therapist. We're going to get someone to come in and do eyeglasses. That's wonderful. How would you say you're, you've helped change the game in this neighborhood? It wasn't only me. It takes a whole lot of people to do what I have done. And I'm so grateful for all the people who have helped with the block captains, and especially with Project Home and all the grateful donors, especially with Sister Mary and Joan. They came to this neighborhood, and they seen that we had potentials. And they just came and took us over. You've met all kinds of people in your capacity. I've met from give me, the give me some to the poorest. From the richest to the poorest. Mm-hmm. Like who? Well, Bon Jovi for number one. Mm-hmm. He's my favorite. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Heineman from Canada Drive. Um, the Middletons from uh, Phillies. They own the Phillies. Yeah, and you had Tiger Woods in there. Yeah, we had Tiger Woods here. President Clinton has been here. So I've touched a lot of elbows with a lot of rich people. So how have you seen the neighborhood change from when you started to now? What was the transformation for you? Oh, we have houses in the neighborhood where you see the emblem says Project Home. They're for first-time home buyers. And most of the people that bought houses are the people that already had lived here in the neighborhood. They would live with their mothers or a grandmother. And when we started doing houses, they came to the counseling classes and they got their own house now. When you look out and you walk this block, how does it make you feel? Wonderful. And they sometimes call me a crybaby when I see certain things come to pe- come develop. You have to live here to see what I'm talking about, to enjoy and see the joy. Yeah, you proud of this. Yes. Well, I want to say congratulations to you, Miss Helen Brown Sugar. Brown Sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Big mama. Yes, and now Game Changer. Yes. That's it for the Best of Flashpoint podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Greg. If you like the podcast, please subscribe using the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. Simply search Flashpoint KYW. Now, if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. If you had a struggle in 2018, remember, you have a chance to start again. You didn't come this far to only come this far. This has been the best of Flashpoint. I appreciate all of your support, Flashpoint fam. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, Happy New Year. Mm-hmm.